0: This is Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. This fall, we're shining a spotlight on our 10 Questions series of public discussions, featuring luminaries from across UCLA and beyond. This year's series is called If Not Now, When? And Luis Alfaro will join us on October 11th to help us answer the question, how do we connect? Luis is a celebrated and award-winning artist and writer. His plays, short stories, poems, and performances are often set in barrios, like the Pico Union District of downtown Los Angeles where he grew up. His plays are often autobiographical and are about working-class people and the systems that trap them—systems of poverty, incarceration, racism, and homophobia. His Greek trilogy has won particular acclaim contemporary retellings of Electra, Oedipus, and Medea, set in Chicano and Latinx communities. He's a MacArthur Genius Fellow, he teaches theatre at the University of Southern California, he was the first-ever playwright in residence at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the country's largest repertory company, and he was recently named the Associate Artistic Director of Centre Theatre Group, which has been a homecoming of sorts. Center Theatre Group includes the Mark Taper Forum and the Amundsen Theatre downtown and the Kirk Douglas Theatre in Culver City. Luis spent a decade at Center Theatre Group as an associate producer, director of New Play Development, and co-director of the Latino Theatre Initiative. His mentor was Gordon Davidson, founding artistic director of the Mark Taper Forum. Luis joined Works in Progress to talk about how the movement for equity, diversity, and inclusion is reshaping theatre how LA theater specifically needs to change to reflect the stories of its audiences and how live theater will recover from the pandemic. We started off though with his interest in downtown LA theater and center theater group. It began when he was a kid.
1: I was born and raised in downtown LA in an area called Pico Union. Mm -hmm. And uh, it figures prominently not only in my art life, but also in my life in relation to CTG because The first four plays that I saw were at the music center because, of course, we lived downtown. And um, my parents both really, my father uh, undocumented for 46 years Mm -hmm. before he passed. You know, uh, my parents were really uh, eager for me to sort of survive that neighborhood because at the time in the 70s, it was a very violent and a a very poor place, of course. And both my parents really held a number of jobs at the same time just to get us to you know to have a kind of life that that would take us out of there and um so anyways early early um i got an interest in theater i didn't really know what it was but the but it's ironic that the first four things i saw at the music center were the national tour of uh, pacific overtures mm-hmm. uh, stephen Hall sondheim's musical uh, about asia mm-hmm. you know which is interesting and then the first uh, national production of for colored girls who have considered suicide mm-hmm. When the Rainbow is Enough, which is Ntozake Shange's play, right about black liberation, black women. Right. And then the world premiere of Zoot Suit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then finally, the first national tour of The Wiz. So wow. what a time to be a kid to see work, right? And then I remember my, I was hooked by that point And my parents were like, we can't afford this. <laughs> I started collecting bo- bottles and uh, cans. And then my mother would sell tamales and cupcakes in the neighborhood. So that I could go to the theater.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. So, but you know, my parents never went in. They sat in the car at the Department of Water and Power. if you know, you know, the music center uh-huh. across the street. They would park there, and then at intermission, I would I would go buy them a coke from the bar <laughs> and t- take it out to the car. And I don't know why my parents never went in, but I don't think they felt it was probably their their place, right? Right. But uh, but they and none of my siblings wanted to go, so i was thrilled to get a single ticket right and see shows and you know immediately i saw a lot of stuff because the music center in 1970s was like the heyday of gordon davidson's real you know worldview about national theater international theater and also los angeles theater right what we were bringing to the world when what the world was bringing to us so i think a lot about that i think about you know the irish national theater and these relationships he had, and these very um, controversial plays at the time. That you know, I was just a kid, so I can't say that I I understood everything. I remember seeing in the Valley of the Beast the play that about Nor- you know Norman Mailer wrote about the serial killer Jack Abbott, mm. right? And and thinking, hmm, I know I'm supposed to be a better person watching this, <laughs> but I'm really learning about like why this man murders. Women, right? Why? Why he's killing people? Right. So I think I think there was something sort of extraordinary about um, culture and community and seeing it that way. So there I am, and my parents kind of put the kabosh on theater going unless I figured out how to go. So I I found out that you could usher. So I was uh, I think I was fourteen, fifteen, and I got a work permit, and I applied for a job. So I was an usher there for a number of years, right? And I saw everything else i mean everything from the original chicago with gwen verdon and cheetah rivera to you know all these crazy 1970s plays you know Lamford wilson's work and you know uh some neil simon in there but really he was he was exploring a kind of america that was like post vietnam right and so david rape streamers you know places uh, plays that were really dealing with the a kind of corrosive America.
0: And there is a a sort of poetry in this uh, coming full circle, and especially you saying that your parents didn't feel like it was their place to go into the theater. They waited for you outside. And um, I think that uh, one of your major interests in taking this job at Center Theater Group is making it the kind of place where people like your parents do feel comfortable walking in. Is that right?
1: Well, making it a place for Los Angelinos, regardless of who you are, right? So Mm -hmm. my my interest and my desires are that the American regional theater is in a real um in a real shifting point it's it's trying to figure out what it is and who it is and who it's for right you know i think a lot about los angeles and i think we're in a county of 10 million people who speak 224 different languages but we only ever really perform in one right but the culture of los angeles is extraordinary right if you were just to look at southern california we're very rich in regional theater expression. We have seven regional theaters, which is amazing, right? And um, they're all led by white men.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So Latinos are, uh, I think, make up 48% of the population. But but we're not represented in any of the leadership. And then you look at associate artistic directors, and I think now we're up to about 12, and I think only two are people of color. So the leadership of the American theater still reflects, I think, a, a world that doesn't take into account the population that actually exists in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So how do how does that leadership, right, in some way, um, you know, start to take into account who that future audience is?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, how would you say we have that discussion? Because as you were saying, um, the murder of George Floyd last summer, I would say really pushed that conversation into high gear, even though it had been going on for years. But maybe it was a combination of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the pandemic, uh, when theater was already kind of um, frozen in place, that it it suddenly seemed like this is the time to have the conversation. What better time than now? Right?
1: Yeah. And I can only use the example of this theater, right? And also, I'm I'm a professor at USC, so really, I'm in two full-time jobs at the moment. I hope not to be soon, but um, in both full-time jobs, the academy and in the arts institutions, they're struggling, I would say from the inside, struggling with how not just to respond, but how to really change systems, right? So I'm really interested in less and sometimes in who the leadership is and what the system is that allows us to, um, to ignore like entire populations of the city. Mm -hmm. So how is it that we are a regional theater that is dedicated to, as a nonprofit arts agency, to expressing Los Angeles, but the majority of what we do really is imported from primarily New York, right? A center, a cultural center of the United States. So what is the story that we are telling here? And every theater has a system of making those stories possible. So uh, from the inside... I will say that, you know, the way most regional theatres do it is through new play development, mm-hmm. through commissions, through um, the representation of local work, through, uh, you know, production. Um, so that means you need, um, you need to cast local actors, you need to hire local playwrights, and you, need to, you need to do a lot of things local. But for the last many years, that's, that's not really the truth of most of these regional theatres. They've looked eastward for their stories. So how do we shift the thinking around the stories that are being told in Los Angeles, and and how interesting these stories are? Right. Right.
0: Yeah. But but you yourself, you mentioned seeing Zoot Suit at a young age. You know, uh, Twilight, Los Angeles, nineteen ninety two, was put mm-hmm. on by Gordon Davidson. Um, there there have been some major Los Angeles stories put on Absolutely. by Center Theatre Group. So is the problem just that there's not enough of them or they're not being developed at a fast enough pace? Um, I think that the systems in the
1: 1980s into the night, well, the 1990s into the 2000s, uh, moved away from uh, things like new play development, right? Moved into a kind of a not developing your work, the work yourself, but kind of bringing it in from somewhere else. So a lot of co-productions, a lot of um, looking at the big hit off-Broadway in New York and bringing that in, right? And so I love all of that. I love national work, I love international work, and I love local work. So how do you balance, make a, create a healthy balance of all of those? But as we know now, and I'll be really honest about my own institution is, we don't have a casting local casting agent, we cast in New York. Mm-hmm. And if you cast in New York, most of the time what you do is you rehearse in New York. Mm -hmm. So if you rehearse in New York, you really just come in and like plug it in, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, what is the new play development? What's a healthy new play development organization, and uh, who has it? And I think probably one of the few uh, in the region is South Coast Rep has a pretty healthy new play development. They commission a lot of local artists. Mm -hmm. You know, do they do they produce them? Is the question? Yeah, right. So if you're going to be interested in the local art. You have to make a commitment to get in it on its stages, and I think that's really as simple as that. Is my job in many ways is not to come in and just to advocate for Latinos, but it's to come in and come in and advocate for the people of Los Angeles, right? About the work that needs to get done here. So a lot of what I'm doing, it uh, might seem subversive. Is um, we need a literary department, mm-hmm. right? We need a department that reads plays, local plays. We need uh, commission money, so money to get artists to write plays about Los Angeles. And, I, and the way i done it, very simply, is by well, the first thing I did when I started is to take over the writer's workshop. There's a writer's workshop at the theater, and I, um, I curated 10 playwrights, gave them a healthy amount of money that would mean, be meaningful to writing a work. And, um, and they're all women, and they're all, except for one a person of color. Um, and I think that's intentional, right? Mm-hmm. What are the stories of Los Angeles that have not been heard yet? And even, even with 10 really fantastic writers, all female, because I think that's also saying something about what we need in the industry. There are some serious uh, people in the room that I would love to have in there. Um, we have a large Central American population. Right, I would love to reflect that even more—a large, um, you know, Persian community, <laughs> Middle Eastern community. Right? Mm-hmm. How do I, how is that reflected in the work? The uh, disability. Right, talking about disability art, talking about um, God. There's so much, but you know, I think that's really uh, for me. That seems really, really important. That if we're going to tell the story of L.A.,
0: let's really look at at who's in L.A. And I mean, there have been plays that came out of those communities but maybe not on a stage as large as Center Theater groups right you've got all these small kind of ethnic theater companies that are doing those kind of plays but maybe they're just not getting the spotlight they need yeah i think what
1: i think what happens sometimes is you know the we are in a nonprofit arts business but we also are in a business that needs to make money so what has what has happened to funding in in the country what has happened in funding for the arts also uh we have a really big theater that is dependent on making money. That's the Amundsen Theater. It's really a commercial house, right? It's really about finding and doing a very big... We're doing Hadestown. We're doing some really beautiful, big musicals that people really want to see. Um, does the taper need to do that, that same thing? I'm not sure it needs to follow the same model in order to reflect, you know, what we... I think the stories we need to reflect. Uh, Kirk Douglas Theater is a 300-seat house. How does it allow you to do more experimental work? Work that doesn't necessarily, um, is gonna make a lot of money, but it's gonna be a real community expression. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I think uh, I'm, uh, I feel very successful right now. You know, we're starting our season with a, a play about LA, with an LA writer who is still in school, who's still at Yale. So I'm so excited about the fact that we're talking about next generation writers, that we will cast it in LA, so it'll be alley actors, and the entire team, along with designers, are all local. That says a lot to our community. It says a lot to building an art community that can be uh, that can be expressed on our stages. That's exciting for me, right? So um, how do I how do I, along with my my colleagues at the theater, in collaboration, build a kind of uh, maybe a new way of seeing theater too?
0: How does the L.A. theater community's proximity to Hollywood affect it? Like, is it helpful or is it hurtful to be so close to Hollywood? Because on the one hand, you have this great pool of writers and actors, but, you know, maybe their sites are focused on writing screenplays or getting into TV or film.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we live in the shadow of the Hollywood sign, right? That's the primary industry here. It is the the single largest industry in the city, right? And um, it's not known for necessarily supporting the theater. So, but it supports a lot of people that work in the theater. So, for instance, there's a lot of exciting writers who have moved to LA. They're not they're not necessarily working in theater plays. They are working on amazing uh, rebirth of the, the cable and uh, the online and all of that, right? So they can, they can make really good money, a decent living wage, even better than a decent living wage, they can buy houses, mm-hmm. they can, you know, uh, do a lot of things, right? So uh, that's always a challenge, right? Because you're, you're never going to compete with that financially. But, but they love the theater. That's where they came out of. I mean, I think one of the renaissance of what's going on right now, even on Netflix, is you're seeing all these amazing theater writers working in this other medium, right? Writing these extraordinary screenplays. And uh, we should be taking advantage of that. We should be encouraging those writers to come back to the theater and do their work, right? Because I think that's exciting, too. But, you know, it just it's just amazing who's working on these shows. It's just a of who's who of of really great theater writers, people who have gone through, you know, playwriting programs and also people who uh, cut their teeth in the theater.
0: Now, the, the pandemic has obviously had a devastating effect on theater, Globally and certainly in Los Angeles, a lot of theaters have shut down or at least temporarily shut down and things are slowly starting to come back. Um, What do you think the long term impact of the pandemic will be? And do you think we can bounce back to not just where we were before the pandemic, but exceed um, where we were? Because the theater was already struggling even before the pandemic. But, you know, now there's hopefully some momentum. Is that what you're seeing to come back? Um
1: I'm not sure I mean I'm seeing momentum for for like on Broadway where we're seeing people of color communities really come forward, right really like sort of embracing the notion of uh, of expression right now. I'm not sure every audience member wants to come back. They want to know what's going on with the pandemic for sure right. You know we we set a policy around uh, vaccinated audience members and that made a difference in ticket sales, right. Mm-hmm because people wanna make sure they're coming back to something they feel safe in. But also, let's not forget that the pandemic really had an effect in terms of how we see art and how we view art, right? We participated as well, CTG participated in a a kind of digital programming, right? And it happened early. We started early in the pandemic. And when we filmed plays, we, we started to get better at it, more sophisticated at it. And I don't think that's going away. We're doing a very interesting play. I can't, anu- I can't say it because we haven't announced it, but a play that uh, is being filmed like a TV show. Hmm. That's
0: hmm. that's brilliant. Really,
1: that's an interesting hybrid, right? So I would say that a lot of the work. We, last night we were premiering a, a piece called uh, "Canyon." Canyons. That was a local theater company piece. That was filmed really like a like a long form. Uh, you know film with the filmmaker and a crew and the whole bit so I uh, yeah, the digital stage has been very exciting because it's kept us in touch with the audience our education department did wonders if you get on our website and you go to education they did short films they did uh, how-to films they did uh, animated films of scripts they commissioned young artists to do 30-minute scripts, I mean, everything down the line, right? I dramatured a ton of them, and they're all local writers. All of them are local writers. So what was really, really exciting was to see that the possibilities, once you take away maybe uh, the money, Mm -hmm. who gets access to the art, right? Mm -hmm. All of this free programming, but also all of these artists who are doing, they got paid, but they're doing these works that normally maybe they wouldn't be able to do, or all of a sudden, available for them to do. And I would say that a lot of this work is so moving, it's so powerful. Um, A lot of them, there's a woman named Diana Barbano, who's a wonderful Colombian writer who lives in Long Beach. She wrote a piece about high school kids who work at at a Latino market, like a kind of tianguis or superior market, and it's all about COVID. And it's so moving, and it's 30 minutes long. And it's it's built an audience as high schoolers. And it did really, really well. It got tons and tons of hits from young people. Wow. It's, speak, it's speaking their language, right? And it's probably kind of like the right length to see online. And it's very emotional. And it's it's a piece about these kids who are like, man, I got this job, and, and look what happened to me. I'm I'm completely, you know... Being fired for being sick, and and why have to, why am I why have, do I have to work right? So I don't know. There's something very very powerful about um, what these stories were and how the stories were be were able to be produced and quickly, right?
0: <laughs> so you don't think that's going away? I mean, maybe a silver lining of the pandemic is this ability to rethink how we uh, present theater, who uh, is presenting that theater, and who the audience is for that theater.
1: Now, yeah, I think, you know, what it did with for art theater, especially, is it opened up the possibility of who that audience is even more, even more, right, so that you can start to imagine that when we come back, let's come back in a different way. I hope so. I hope so. I'm also in a very big, gigantic, um, you know, nonprofit arts agency. I mean, in a smaller theater. Uh, My curatorial skills might be a little bit better in a big, gigantic company like this. I'm one of many, many voices trying to create programming, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you subvert these systems, these ways that these uh, industries are built to create access for everyone?
0: Yeah. Is that a challenge that you face where maybe the subscriber base for Center Theatre Group, like for many nonprofit arts organizations, tends to be more white and more affluent? And so you want to present work that appeals to that existing subscriber base while also presenting work that will bring in a new audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking, you know, it, it, like everything I do politically, it's local, it's national, and it's international. How do you think along those lines? And so I've just started in a very small way with the writers group to say the disproportionately low number of female writers that are produced in America is uh, terrible, terrible. So how do I how do I help shift and change that? Right. And I'm hoping that one of these or all of these plays and, the, and you know, because you pick local writers um, and because you pick great local writers and because they're already incredible people who, who are very... Um, Full of idea, I, I'm. You know, a lot of the plays have to do with gentrification. They have to do with mental health in America. They have to do with uh, native experience. You know, I mean, it's just not a surprise that these are the th- stories that these writers want to tell, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exciting and, and in very really interesting ways. There's a writer who's writing a piece about um, female magicians. And, you know, like it almost seems kind of like funny. And then you start to think the woefully low number of female magicians has a little to do with the fact that it's a very closed society. It has something to do with the fact that women, um, you know, in the 1920s and 30s were not allowed to be uh, magicians because uh, it was assumed that they didn't have pockets so they couldn't hide doves. I mean, come on, right? So. So there's just such beautiful uh, expression and art and history, right? And story that just takes you somewhere else, right? But But I love, I love, I love when you open up the storyteller and who's telling the story that you start to get a very different story of America and a story that we can all enter through emotion, through empathy, through compassion. And hopefully that's my goal, right? Ultimately always is how do I tell the story for me of this city called LA. There are people in the company who already have very deep and powerful connections to New York and Broadway and off-Broadway. And I know all of those people too, but you know what? It's really fantastic to be welcomed in with the with the idea that you can help tell an LA story.
0: Now, you mentioned that you have two full-time jobs right now. You're teaching at the USC School of Dramatic Arts and you're now at the Center uh, Theater Group. So you're very much like an insider, I would say, within the L.A. theater scene. And you're a longtime uh, well-respected, well-regarded playwright. You know, you've uh, won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. And yet you came into this job very much as a critic, right? Like writing a letter to Michael Ritchie, the artistic director of Center Theater Group, explaining what needs to change. So you're both the insider and outsider here, aren't you?
1: Well, that's the way I, I've always wanted to work, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to be in the inside to be able to change it, but I, I need to be outside to be able to see it, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the joys of being a playwright and still continuing to get produced is that, you know, I've gone around the country and I've been working with all these theaters. I was at Chicago's uh, uh, Victory Gardens Theater for seven years. I was at Oregon Shakespeare Festival for six seasons as a playwright in residence. So I know how theaters work. When when Michael asked me to do uh, this at the, in the middle of the pandemic they started a sort of artist collective and they asked people to come and join and kind of share information about how things were going and how they could do it better and I was really excited and it was fun but I realized that it wasn't enough so I wrote him a letter saying this is not satisfying to me because we're only talking about my work and actually we need to be talking about a lot of other work so Uh, I don't see where the doors are open and I don't know, I don't know how to, in my job with you right now, how to open the door for others. And so I need you to help me do that or tell me how that works or la, 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 la. And, you know, he said, come in. And then he said, come in, but come in with idea. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did a proposal that was super gigantic and super um, ambitious because you know I think that's one way to do them kill them with kindness <laughs> and a lot of good ide- ideas and then almost immediately he said you know it's too much and then he said you know I'm leaving in two years so I said okay let me amend this and then I had four really good ideas which I still have and he said you know I'm leaving in six months so he was <laughs> himself you know already on his own transition so these four ideas are really what I've come into the, the company with and the first one was Of course, the heart and soul of any company are its artists. So I knew that I needed to be in charge of the writers' group. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do it different. And I knew that I wanted to curate it, not in a group setting, but that there needed to be a point of view, right? A very clear point of view. And I won't always do it, you know? I don't think anybody should stay anywhere forever. Right, So one of the things that's happening in the regional theaters right now is people who have been in, in their jobs for 30, 35 years are starting to retire. So Bob Falls at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, Sam Woodhouse at San Diego Rap is leaving after many, many years. You're watching a whole generation start to move on, right? Mm-hmm. But I've always felt, and you know, partly this has to do that I have a colleague and a, a dear best friend who I mostly work with as a director, his name is Che Yu. Any Singaporean artist, and you know, from the beginning, because we started our careers at the same time, we had always decided that we would never stay anywhere for more than 10 years. You know, there's a kind of life cycle, and that you have to give it over to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So, how do you build a space and how do you build an experience for the next generation to also be able to lead and to come in and do their thing? So, you know, that's part of the, that's part of, um, of, of of always staying true to the art and to the nature of art as being avant-garde, right? And to uh, to make it full of inquiry and change and shift, that's our job as artists, right? And so I hope to never sort of settle in anywhere too much. You know, it's been a joy to be at USC because in some way, I, I'm an agitator. I'm a subversive at the university, right? Right.
0: Yeah. But what is your future with Center Theatre Group? Because you're coming in just at the tail end of Michael Ritchie's tenure there. He's retiring as artistic director at the end of the year. Are you uh, involved in the process of looking for his replacement? And um, like, how do you make sure that the ideas that you came in with uh, are going to continue into 2022 and beyond? Yeah. So, you know, I'd be, I'll
1: be incredibly frank here and very transparent I always assumed that when I heard that Michael, when he finally told me he was leaving in December at the end of this year, I assumed that I would leave in December at the end of this year. And then, you know, a search firm gets hired, right? So they'll probably announce a new leader in June of next year. And I'm assuming that in June of next year, the new leader says, thank you so much. Thank you for planting these seeds, (laughs) but I need to bring in my own team, right? Or... The person says, "Listen, like help me, help me tell this LA story." Um, so you know, I think the thing about art and the thing that's been really, very kind and good to me is that um, I've never planned my career, and I've always had a career that's like, "Hey, you lasted six months, great, move on," or "You've lasted five years, thank you." You know, when I went to uh, Oregon Shakes, I was supposed to be there for three, and the Mellon Foundation was like, "God, this is going good. We're gonna, we're gonna fund you for another three, right? Continue the work you're doing. So I think it's always been a. I'm prepared to, to leave at the end of the year, and I'm prepared to leave in ten years. So somebody. So let's see. So let's see how much they'll let me get away with. Um, the thing that's really important is to not buy into the systems. So right. that's the hard part, and that's the part where you have to really work on a diplomacy, ambassadorship, and um, generosity and kindness. And uh, I have a kind of like a. Very definitive way that I work. I don't talk about anybody, a fellow artist, ever, even if they drive me insane and I can't stand them. I just won't talk about them badly in public. Uh, there are enough people to do that, right? right? So I don't talk bad about the field and I don't talk bad about the people in it, right? But what I really will talk about is how badly we need to change it, Yeah right? Because the system that exists, we primarily know now that it exists. To support just one certain kind of audience and sometimes one certain kind of artist but the generation that has come forward is so much more diverse not only in race not only in culture not only even in class but also in approach there are stories that are not being told the same way partly because we have a generation that it was not raised in the theater they were raised on these little uh, cell phones that they carry around. They were raised on TikTok and whatever, right? So yeah. if you think about it, um, the, the way that we tell stories today is very, very different. So how do we honor all of that and all of those expressions and try to bring them into the theater in ways that are exciting and fun? I'm thrilled to be focused on young writers. So in some ways, somebody always says to me, "Wow, you're kind of actively not sort of doing your promoting yourself but you know what the truth is um a healthy a healthy field includes me right so i still get to do my work but it's really my job as an advocate to get that next generation forward so this season i'm very happy to have brought forward someone who is really young from l.a Uh, from Whittier, California, right? From the region, telling a story about the region. And then next season, you know, we've taken an option on a really young writer who's also just graduated from school. And he'll tell another story about about another region, but he's young and emerging. I think we must extend our hand and not forget that we've lost a generation in this pandemic. Mm. We've lost them. If they haven't actually passed on, we've lost them in terms of, not having kept in touch with them. We're all rusty going back to the theater. I'm terrified going back to the theater. I'll only go to a, like outdoor theater, right? But um, I eventually I have to go back in and I'm actually helping put together an event right now that is for our staff around a ritual for coming back into the space that honors and sanctifies and recommits us and, and I'm calling it re-entry, right? It's how do we come back into these spaces knowing that we come back, you know, different, fully masked, for sure. For at least the next year, we know that much, right? And we know that we're, we have to be vaccinated and we know we have to come back to it in a very different way. So the systems have changed, but the stories are ancient. The stories are ageless. The story will always be told in a circle, in a space, always to each other in some sort of connection. And that, that doesn't change. And that's why the theatre is so important vibrant and alive because it is essential to our lives in terms of our spirit. It is a spiritual practice, right? It is the place where we learn how to be better people.
0: I think that's a great place to end. Luis Alfaro, (laughs) thank you so much for your time.
1: What a pleasure, thank you, thank you. And I will see you soon.
0: That's Luis Alfaro, celebrated playwright and the Associate Artistic Director of Center Theatre Group. On October 11th, he'll be responding to the question, how do we connect, as part of the UCLA Arts Annual Public Lecture Series, 10 Questions, which brings together fascinating people from across UCLA and beyond to examine 10 essential questions. Find information to register and watch recordings of past events at arts.ucla.edu. You've been listening to Works in Progress from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. Thanks for listening and be well.